Cusick Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. Don't underestimate the other guys, Green. Robert, Mark, and Reed. You have the right to remain silent. Let me shut up. It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. They see me rolling. Fighting for Justice Radio analyzes civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and covers all legal current events. Each week, Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice features newsmakers, attorneys, media personalities, celebrities, experts, business people, and so much more. Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice. Straight talk, no nonsense. I'm going to make them an offer again with you. Now it's time for Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. Here are your hosts, Robert, Mark, and Reed. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the show, and thanks very much for listening. We really appreciate it. We have another fantastic show for you today. Remember to check out our website at kuziklaw.com. That's K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com. And let your friends know that they can listen to the show on iTunes at www.blogtalkradio.com. On Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Reed Brightman, Robert Ryan, and Mark Leonardo, we analyze the hottest civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and we cover legal current events. Today we have five really interesting stories, and after that, if we have time, we'll do Reed's rant and wrap things up from there. Again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice. First story of the week Robert Ryan is handling is a very interesting case about the wrongful death lawsuits that have now been filed on that Oakland fire. Robert, tell us about that. That's right. Well, we talked about this story earlier this month, that terrible tragedy in that Oakland warehouse called the Ghost Ship. Uh, There was a a musical event that was taking place uh, promoted by a record company when a fire broke out and tragically 36 people died and dozens more seriously injured. So we talked then about... uh, what would happen as far as the potentially liable parties for all of the lawsuits and civil claims that were sure to arise? And now we have an answer, first of all, because we see the first lawsuit that has been filed by the parents of two of the young people who died in that fire. Um, the lawsuit characterizes the ghost ship warehouse where this occurred has a death trap. Um, they've sued the building owners. They've sued uh, basically everybody and his brother who had anything to do with that building, including the Oakland Fire Department. Uh, the lawsuit contains the rather startling allegation that the Oakland Fire Department, who had a fire station like barely 200 yards away from this, had in fact used that space to host a musical event of its own there uh, within the past year or two, and therefore was well aware of all of the fire code violations and basically the fact the place was a fire trap well in advance of this terrible tragedy. Wow, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard that part. Yeah, but and what, so what they, about government immunity? Well, that's a good that's a good uh that's a good question. I mean, governmental immunity is going to play a big role in all of this because, you know, we had 36 deaths. These were basically younger people who had, you know, lifespans ahead of them. Uh we have seriously injured people. I mean, it's not uh it's not too much to say that the potential amounts of the civil claims could easily total in excess of a hundred, maybe multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. And so where is that money going to come from? Well, you know, the building owner has been sued. The, the subtenant who was uh, leasing it to the, sub, uh, the subtenants uh, has also been sued. But 
the, the amount of insurance is going to be somewhat limited there. So obviously the target that will be set will be for the municipality, the city of Oakland, the city housing inspectors, and also the Oakland Fire Department, who is also named in this suit. There are governmental immunities that protect municipalities in the discharge of their governmental responsibilities. Um, there's certain limited exceptions where they have something to do with creating the risk uh, that causes the harm in the first place. And so we'll have to keep an eye on these lawsuits to see how, how well the plaintiffs do in trying to get around the governmental immunities that the city of Oakland and the other deep pockets like the fire department uh, have. That will be interesting. I mean, they're, they have a they have an uphill battle uh, in their claims against the government entities, but I think obviously the claims against the uh, the building owner and the landlord who subleased it those are going to probably be pretty easy claims. But I saw some pictures of this place, and man, if you just walking by just from the street, it's it's clearly a dilapidated building. I mean, nobody. Nobody reasonably would look at that building and say, oh, gee, this is a safe building. And and that argument can go both ways. Not only, you know, the plaintiffs or their estates, the plaintiffs should have known that this is unsafe. Uh, but, of course, the fire department that drives in front of it every day, uh, they should have known this is unsafe. Why is it not boarded up? Why is it not condemned? Why is it not red tagged? It's very interesting. Well, well, the allegation is that, uh, at least on behalf of the building owners, is that they had no knowledge that people were actually living there. Now, that seems to be a bit of a stretch because it was such a well-known or even notorious location. It was kind of this hip artist colony. It was a combination flop house. It was a combination drug den by some accounts of some of the previous tenants who had stayed there. So it had a lot of notoriety in the community there. And how that notoriety managed to escape the attention of the fire department, the housing inspectors in the city of Oakland, well, that's going to be something that uh, we'll probably find out as a result of these lawsuits. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how far the government immunity protects them. But i got to tell you, I've seen I've seen cases of just egregious conduct by the government, um, even criminal conduct by uh, employees of the government, and their com- the the government entity itself, not the not the employees, but the government entity itself, they're completely immune in a lot of these cases, and it's it's sickening. And I I really think it is unfair. I would love to see the law changed because the government should be accountable for the harm it causes. And I would rather see the loss here, let's say it's $100 million, I'd rather see that loss borne by the entire population of taxpayers in the state of California. So maybe we'll each have to pay an extra, you know, $3 in taxes or $5 in taxes uh, rather than 36 families. You know, it's, it's, it's not fair, and I'd like to see that law changed. All right, let's move on to Mark Leonardo's story. This is very interesting. IKEA reaches a $50 million wrongful death settlement over some falling dressers. Um, Mark, tell us about this story. Well, as you know, we seem to specialize here on this radio program in sad stories. At least that's the way it seems sometimes. So many tragedies out there. This is another one. Um, Back in July of last year, a young child, a two-year-old toddler by the name of Kern Collis, um, uh, his mom woke up one morning and walked into his bedroom and found his dresser had toppled over with him underneath it. 
and uh, paramedics were called, of course, and they tried to resuscitate him but were unsuccessful. Um, now, the dresser that fell on him was called a MALM, M-A-L-M, chest, which is sold by uh, the Scandinavian company IKEA, in which there are about 7 million of these dressers across the country. So what, what happened to Curran is known as a tip-over. That's the term for when an everyday appliance or piece of furniture is knocked over or falls over and suddenly is transformed into a deadly threat. Um, according to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, a child dies roughly once every two weeks due to these tip-over incidents. Wow. And the vast majority of the kids are under the age of five. So Curran was one of two kids that were killed last year by this particular piece of furniture, and then there was a third child a um, year before that. And um, the statistics are roughly a half of a million tip-over injuries have been identified by the CPSC, since 2000, in addition to 430 fatalities over that time period. Um, so toppling televisions constitutes roughly two-thirds of all those deaths, and over 80% of those victims are kids. And kids are particularly vulnerable because, you know, they're small, obviously. What they typically do is they pull the drawers out and they climb on the drawers to get to the top, get something off the top of the dresser, and then it becomes top-heavy and it falls over because it's not secured to the wall. Um, so but doesn't the CP- doesn't the manufacturer and also IKEA they they generally sell those things with straps that are supposed to be anchored to the wall that can be attached to the back of the dresser. Is that not the case times, in this particular situation? No, a lot of times they they come with those little brackets or they come with the straps and people don't put them on or they don't read the you know the warnings that come along with uh, the product um, and. Yeah, they said that it's a big problem. And so what they did here after these two deaths last year, they issued uh, uh, not a recall, but they sent out um, all these little fix-it kits to attach all these dressers to like, you know, 20 million people that had these dressers. Um, just would back up for a second. When one of these, you know, TVs fall over, that's like the number, the, you know, number one thing that falls over from the top of a dresser from the way I described it when a kid climbs on it or bumps into it. And they said that when a TV falls the, uh, from the average size dresser, the force of the TV could have uh, about 1,000 pounds of pressure on, on a kid. So obviously uh, the kid's not going to do fare well in those circumstances. We had um, former Pennsylvania representative by the name of Allison Schwartz. She twice tried to introduce bills aimed at getting the CPSC to issue stricter standards for furniture that children might climb upon because right now there are no um, regulations at all for furniture stability. Um, so twice she did this. One of the bills was named after a three-year-old kid that was crushed by the name of Katie Lambert back in 2005. But both times she introduced these bills, they didn't go anywhere. So the parents of the three toddlers that were recently killed uh, sued Ikea and, uh, for wrongful death, and the company agreed to a $50 million settlement which is considered to be one of, probably one of the highest wrongful death cases for children in the country. So what the, the three families are going to split the $50 million, and IKEA has also agreed to donate a quarter of a million dollars to several hospitals and a child safety nonprofit organization called Shane's Foundation. And, uh, that seems like before a really this, big settlement in something that they would really, you know, normally these manufacturers fight really hard and dispute. There must have been some serious smoking gun that they found. 
Well, yeah, the lawyer actually said they found they found records that they knew that this uh, they knew this posed a danger and they didn't you know have adequate safety and warnings and that kind of thing. But uh, as Robert pointed out, you know a lot of them come with these kits. They come with the kits, but people don't put them on. Yeah, I, I've bought so, I've bought a lot of things from there, and, and every time I've bought it, it came with the kit. But I will say also that I never used the kit. I ne- I never bothered to attach any of those to the to the wall. Yeah. I, I'm guilty of that myself. I've, uh, I bought, I have put TVs on top of dressers and not attached it, but I think I would think twice now. All right, let's move on. You're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio, if you just joined us. Um, Robert has a story about higher payouts ahead for undocumented plaintiffs in personal injury cases. This is very interesting. Tell us about it, Robert. Well, this is an update on a story that we did a couple of weeks ago concerning the passage of something called Assembly Bill 2159. A little background here. In 1986, there was a court case. It's called Rodriguez versus Klein. And said that a personal injury plaintiff, meaning somebody who had been injured in an accident, who had a claim for lost earnings, couldn't claim the amount that he would earn in the United States if he was not legally permitted to work in the United States. So under those circumstances, he would have to testify as to what his country of origin was, and his loss of earnings or future loss of earnings claim would be limited to what he would have made in his home country, which typically would be much less. But there was a different and a, and, a, and a more harmful effect that this rule had on personal injury plaintiffs because under these circumstances, many claims weren't brought at all because people did not want to be required to testify under oath that they were in the country illegally. So many loss of earnings claims were just abandoned because of this, because of this rule. Also, many personal injury claims weren't brought in the first instance because if somebody's immigration status was going to become the subject of the litigation, testimony under oath would be required concerning the fact that somebody is in this country illegally. So this law was passed. It's going to go into effect next week, January 1st. And we're starting to see a little bit of pushback now because, you know, defense firms and the insurance industry is faced now with more claims, claims that are going to be worth more, and this chilling effect that this court case uh, in 1986 had on the presentation of such claims is going to be eliminated, which ultimately may result in more insurance money being paid out in claims and higher premiums. And so now we're starting to see a little bit of grumbling and a little bit of pushback from the insurance industry and from the defense bar about, well, you know, this is going to cost California consumers money uh, by way of higher insurance premiums. You know, again, I come back to the same general policy decisions. And, you know, in society, we have, we have accidents and we have losses, and it's about who suffers those losses. Now, I think if a person doesn't go to school and doesn't get education and, and therefore they don't have a job, you know, that person chose that path, chose not to go to school, chose to goof off or whatever they did, and they should suffer the consequences, and not everybody, not the taxpayers. On the other hand, where you have somebody that legitimately gets injured, uh, then I think it's okay for the people that are responsible for that to to pony up the money. And here, yeah, if insurance companies have to pay out more, they're still paying – they're just being forced to pay fair settlements. And if that means that everybody's premiums go up a little bit, again, I think that's okay. That's the nature of insurance. We're spreading well, this point. risk. 
that's an absolute good point. I mean, in a way, the insurance industry was receiving a windfall because the true measure of damages suffered by these injured plaintiffs was not being paid. I mean, there was no doubt that they they lost this future income here in the United States because despite the fact they weren't legally entitled to, they were working in the United States and so therefore had suffered the loss. So you're right, Reed. I mean, in a way, it's just making good on what the law says they were entitled to in the first place, which is fair and just compensation for what they've lost. Right. And a bigger issue is, you know, it, if an insurance company is going to have to pay ten or $20,000 more because they can show some loss, earn, loss of earnings or whatever the amount is, they're going to have to pay more because of actual true lost earnings. Um, I get that. And that's I guess that that could be debated, but the effect of that court ruling was not just limited to, okay, not being able to get as much lost earnings as one would fairly be entitled to. It, as you said, it was making people afraid to even bring their cases at all. And yes, so people the were giving effect. up their rights. You know, And if you can imagine, let's say some undocumented worker is here. And he has a family, and he has two or three kids, and he's out there working. He's busting his rear end off every day trying to care for his family and feed his family. And through no fault of his own, he gets into a car accident, and he's out of work for two months. Okay, That guy, if he is, is forced to give up his claim, and he has to you know, figure out, work an extra job or figure out a way to get the money to repair his car. And uh, he, he has no way of getting any redress because he's afraid that if he stands up for his rights, he's going to get deported. That's just not, that's not the way our society works. That's not the way it should work. And I'm very happy that this law is going into effect to stop that kind of a thing. Um, so I'm glad to hear that that new law is coming in. All right, let's move on to Mark's story. Uh, we have a, this is an Oakland lawsuit over a teen's tree climbing death, and they're seeking to prevent these kind of tragedies in the future by bringing this litigation. Uh, Mark, tell us about that. Right. The, the city of Oakland knew that a popular climbing tree at a location called Lakeside Park was diseased before it broke and caused a 16-year-old boy's death last year. Um, Jack Lewis was the kid's name. Uh, he was one of several young people who were climbing a big black acacia tree during a friend's birthday party at a place called Lake Merritt, which is just outside the entrance to Children's Fairyland. This was uh, December 4th of last year. Children's Fairyland is a small amusement park. Sadly, uh, a large rotted limb that he was on fell, and he fell, to, he fell to the ground, and then the limb came down. It fell on him and crushed him. Um, the tree was removed the day after he died. Um, but prior to, the, prior to this happening, the tree was marked for removal by the city, and it had been recently pruned, indicating that the workers knew it was dead or dying and, and dangerous, according to the, the plaintiff's attorney, uh, John Weiner. And Weiner said that the city of Oakland had multiple opportunities to prevent this tragedy, and every time they, they simply fell down. Um, According to, to Weiner, this was a popular climbing tree among teenagers who frequently sat on its limb because it provided a great view of the sunset and nearby Lake Merritt. Um, it seemed virtually impossible for the employees of the city of Oakland not to know that. So even though it was marked to be removed, they didn't put up any kind of warning or cones or tape or anything. 
You know, so. I, I got a problem with this one. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, I feel bad for, for any young person that climbs a tree and a branch breaks and he falls and he's injured or, or killed in this tragic particular instance. But to say that a city now has a duty to make sure that trees that are available or out there that people may or may not climb to somehow warn of a potential danger from tri- climbing trees, I mean, that seems to me to be imposing a burden on the taxpayers that's, that's really bordering on the absurd. It's I mean, impossible. Really. I mean, I, I, I climbed trees when I was a kid. I would go to the highest part. The branch would break. I mean, there's probably times when I could have easily broken my neck, but it would never have occurred to me or my family to somehow suggest that the landowner on whose property the tree was, whether that was a government entity or a private landowner, was somehow responsible for making sure that the tree branch wasn't going to break. I mean, that one just seems to me to be such a stretch and a stretch that, I mean, I know this is the kind of business that we're in, bringing claims on behalf of injured people, but to say that a municipality has liability because a tree branch breaks, uh, I I have a problem with that one. Well, I think the difference here, Robert, is that that, that they knew this was a a, a place, um, it's a popular climbing tree. It isn't like any tree anywhere. You know, I know there's, a, there's like a big tree up in Santa Barbara, this huge, huge, massive tree. People, they, they've now kind of got it cordoned off. But before, people used to go up there and climb it all the time. So the city knew that. And I think the city knew in this circumstance as well, because it was right outside this park, right outside this amusement park. And like I said, people would go climb up there and sit there and watch the sunset. So they knew people were on this particular tree. And then they knew but how does so so how does knowledge create create a duty then to police the tree to make sure that a branch doesn't break? I mean, anybody who climbs a tree knows that there's a risk that a branch could break, and that injury or even death could result from an ensuing fall. I mean, it's just I mean, just because the the city is aware that this tree the branch may break, how does that create a duty to then prevent people from climbing the tree? I mean, that no, seems to me to be a duty that would just reach so broadly in so many right. dimensions as to has to create virtual unlimited liability for any municipality um, with knowledge that, hey, guess what? Tree branches break if you climb on them and you might get hurt. I could see them well, having think- to pass, to pass a, a law that says climbing on, on public publicly owned trees municipal on municipal lands uh is illegal i mean there's there'd be no way to 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 protect the municipality from that people have to understand that if if they climb a tree they might fall out of it if they go skiing they might break their leg they might get injured if they do any kind of you know sport everybody knows you're taking a risk if you jump out of an airplane you're taking a risk your parachute might work might not work and you can't sue uh, just because you got injured. The, the, you have to show that the defendant had a duty to take care of you and breached that duty somehow. Well, the, the argument made is that there's a dangerous condition. It was a known dangerous condition. When there's a known dangerous condition on your land, whether you're a private owner or the government, you have a duty to warn or make safe that dangerous condition. And since they knew if this was earmarked to be removed, they should – and they knew people were up there frequently – they should have put some kind of warning there. And of course, you're right that you know obviously climbing a tree is dangerous. We all know that you can fall and get hurt and get killed. And there's going to be a claim for contributory negligence by the defense. 
So now, so now the busy. municipality has to like deforest uh, public lands, let somebody climb up a tree and a branch break and they get injured and file a lawsuit as a result. Right. That, that's an extreme view. <laughs> but I think if it's a known dangerous condition, like it was in this case, you know, they should have they should have warned these. They should have had some kind of warning out there. Or they should, oh. maybe maybe they should have taken the tree down. I mean, I, I well, think in was. this case the tree was already dead, and they should have taken that down. Well, it was, ear, it was earmarked to be removed the very next day, and actually it was removed the next day. Unfortunately, it was one day too late. You know, we had there, there's some real problems. I had a friend who had a tree that was dying or dead in front of his house in Manhattan Beach, and he fought and fought with the city to be given a permit. He needed a permit to remove the tree. And because the neighbor complained and said, no, I like that tree, it got delayed and delayed, and he was fighting and fighting until finally one day the tree fell on his house and crushed the house. The house was destroyed. Uh, he had to sell the property for land value only. And um, through some stupidity on his part, he, he, his insurance had lapsed. <laughs> so he didn't even – it wasn't even covered by insurance. Um, it's a good thing that the land was still worth a, fair, a pretty penny. But, you know, you have these – you have – these laws that protect trees and it make it really difficult to get a get permission from the government to remove a tree even when they're dead um and try removing an oak tree in california it's probably easier to to launch a mission to the moon um and then then at this it, it's very frustrating when the government through the courts then will hold that very same person liable for the damage caused by the tree if it falls down or somebody gets injured very very scary. true very true you know you know how we talked about government immunity? That's going to come up in this particular lawsuit because we have a government code section, 831.7, that talks about hazardous recreational activities, and it specifically lists tree climbing. And so uh, if you're engaged in one of those hazardous activities, um, that's probably going to provide immunity to the, to the city. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, that defense is probably their best defense. Yep. All right, you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. We're going to move on to the next story with Robert Ryan. Very interesting new laws for 2017. Um, Robert, tell us about some of these new laws. Well, we've got a whole host of new laws because, you know, California has a very active uh, legislature who's uh, passing new laws that uh, regulate all sorts of activity every year. And uh, we also have the initiative system where, you know, proposals, uh, propositions, they're called, are put before the, the voters and they can get passed and they become law as a result. So we have a whole bunch to talk about today. Um, first of all, uh, workers will be looking at a raise in the minimum wage. Uh, the minimum wage in California is $10 an hour, which is higher than the $7.25 required by federal standards. But that will be going up to $10.50 come January 1st. Um, and that will be on its way to an increase of to $15 an hour by the year 2022. Now, this only applies to businesses with more than 26 employees, but it's pretty well documented that once you pass a law like this, everybody else has to raise their minimum wage, even if they're less than 26 employees, in order to get employees to stay or to be hired on in the first place. So that's one of the one of the one of the new changes coming along. Um, business groups, of course, are saying that that's going to lead to higher prices because the money needs to come from somewhere. They're also saying that it's going to result in less jobs because uh, they have to pay their existing employees more, so there's less money for new employees. 
labor advocates, on the other hand, of course, say that every employee is entitled to a living wage and uh, that the increased purchasing power by giving employees uh, more money will help the overall economy and will all benefit. It'll be interesting to see how that works out. I know that uh, uh, there has been some movement towards automation and replacing uh, human jobs with uh, machine jobs, robots or what have you. Uh, I even see in the movie theaters now um, these machines that will dole out uh, whatever thousands of combinations you can come up with of different types of uh, beverages, and that means less need for uh, high school students that like to work behind the register at a at a movie store. And sure. this is the kind of thing that causes that. Well, you know, I mean, when labor costs go up, then uh, people look for alternatives, and automation is one of them. So we also have a couple of laws coming on the books that are the response to court cases. Um, One of them may remember uh, Brock Turner. He was the Stanford swimmer who was found guilty of assaulting, sexually assaulting an unconscious woman who had had too much to drink. Quite a fanfare when he was only given probation uh, by the judge. And as a matter of fact, there was a judicial inquiry into the fitness of the judge. There was some talk about trying to recall the judge. A tremendous firestorm of controversy. And now a new law has been passed that says uh, that that's not going to happen again, that uh, anybody convicted of sexual assault on an intoxicated or unconscious person uh, has to do jail time, that uh, it's no longer going to be an acceptable sentence for only being uh, given probation. So that's one that's one uh, change that comes as a result of a court case. And there's another interesting one concerning texting while driving. There was a woman who was given a ticket for texting while driving, which is already against the law in California. And her defense was that, no, she wasn't texting at all, that what she was doing was she was using a mobile app uh, like MapQuest on her phone for directions. And that the law was unfair because if she had been using the navigation system in her car, that would have been okay. And so the ticket ultimately was thrown out on appeal. Now the law says absolutely no use of a handheld device while driving, whether you're using it for Waze or for map apps or anything like that, um, and that the only uh, handheld device that can be used while driving is one that is voice activated. So that's another law that has been passed as a result of court cases that we have been following throughout the year. Um, some of the more uh, lighter ones, you, if you're down at the hair salon and you're getting your tips done and you're getting your lineup uh, fixed, uh, you can be served wine, a glass of wine or a cold beer now. Uh, available oh, in hair right. salons and bar- barbershops. So that's that's something something nice. Um, let's see, what else do we have? We have, uh, we have a law that says that minors can no longer be charged with engaging in prostitution. Uh, societal attitudes towards sex crimes and sex offenses in light of human trafficking and a lot of publicist, public, uh, publication of that type of thing has resulted in people determining that minors, when they're engaged in prostitution, are actually victims. And so they can no longer be charged with that. Um, and when you got to go, this is the, I call this the when you got to go, you got to go law. Um, anybody uh, can use a single toilet uh, facility. Um, those can no longer be gen- gender specific. So if you need to use a restroom and there's only a single toilet in there, both a man or a woman now needs to be allowed access into that. No or matter what the marking is on the outside? I'm sorry? No matter what the marking is on the outside? So well, the markings on the outside are going to have to reflect that according to this new law that's going to go into effect on January 1st. Now, it's not going to change the situation. 
Yeah, well, we're down, we're, like you're at the when you're at the the ball game or you're at the uh, the concert, and there's like fifty thousand women out in front of the ladies' room, and there's the, the men are coming in and out. We've all seen that, right? That's not going to change because those are multiple stall facilities, uh, meaning there's more than one toilet in each of those rooms. But if you're down at your local, say, restaurant or Starbucks and where they have just a single toilet in there, those are going to have to be gender neutral, meaning that both genders can gain access to them. Well, that's good. And I understand. I, 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 I understand there's a new law about called the Right to Try Bill where the permanently ill patients will be allowed to use experimental drugs that are not yet approved? Well, that's right, you know, and, and this is one of these laws that the rest of the country sometimes look at California and shakes their heads. You know, I mean, there's always somebody who has some terminal illness, and we've seen this a lot in California with these new alternative uh, or experimental types of therapies that are available. And many times the drugs that are involved are not approved for that particular condition, but some doctor comes along and thinks that he has some, some uh, promising trials or some promising results. And so now any terminally ill patient can use a drug, even if it's experimental and even if it's not approved for that particular condition, as part of that treatment. A doctor's declaration is going to be needed concerning the terminal nature of the illness. Um, but the law also provides that the doctor cannot be the subject of a lawsuit if they try this and it's somehow unsuccessful or if there's some other ill effect that comes as a result. I, I have to say I really strongly agree with that law. And I think that as long as a person is making an informed choice, they should be able to choose what they want to do with their own body. And I have personally seen, uh, when my father was alive, he had an alternative cancer treatment clinic that provided insulin potentiation therapy. I won't go into all the details about that, but it was considered alternative. It was frowned upon by mainstream uh, medical providers when he started it. Um, he didn't invent it, but when he started his practice of it. And... Uh, through the 12 years that he did that, it got more and more popular, and it's much, it's more mainstream now, but but still alternative. Uh, but he saved a lot of lives. He had people with pancreatic cancer uh, that had no chance at all. They were given absolute terminal diagnosis, and he saved them. And uh, it was a much gentler form of chemotherapy. It's a, it's it's the manner in which the chemo is is given. It's the same exact treatment. It's just it's the manner in which it's given and other things that they do to boost the immune system. That would be, uh, you know, that that would be, it's definitely questionable because it's it's an alternative treatment, though it was legal in California. But Well, I the, think, I think the, a lot of the allegation or the, the, the concern has been that, you know, quacks or, you know, people who really don't have the patient's best interest at, at hand could take advantage of desperate people, people who are desperate for a cure, people who are looking for any alternative because basically they've been given a death sentence. And they might be prone to being manipulated or even exploited by, you know, unscrupulous practitioners who are promising cure-alls that, you know, are anything but. But, Reed, you just pointed out there are many experimental therapies, and let's face it, that's how we find out about therapies that are effective, by giving them a 100%. chance, by 100%. giving them a try. And so that's what this law allows. Well, it's 100%. And about about 10 years ago, I was involved with a company that did stem cells, and they sponsored uh, a research project in Georgia, I think it was, Georgia or Alabama, I can't remember, I think it was Georgia, where they injected a massive amount of 
stem cells into people with that had, uh, I believe it was type 2 diabetes, the type where they don't produce insulin and they have to take insulin shots. Um, now, it was a small experiment. It was only 13 patients, but 100% of those 13 patients began producing their own insulin after that. Oh, see, there you go. And also, right, and the um, FDA shut it down because yeah. it wasn't approved, and they shut it down. And, and if the government would not be so... Are restrictive on that and and be more open to people who who make an informed decision. Maybe we would have had a, a an absolute cure for type two diabetes. Although that would decimate certain industries that profit greatly from human suffering, such as dialysis and stuff like that. Exactly. Um, you know, I'd rather have after, the cure. They, they came after your dad too, right, Reed? Because they they yeah. the AMA didn't like what he was doing. Yeah, it, it was, they did. It was too alternative. And, Absolutely. The the government, medical boards, they want to see people doing the doing things that are mainstream. And, and that particular type, insulin potentiation therapy, it's very controversial, um, but it uses less chemo than regular standard mainstream treatment. And therefore, the pharmaceutical companies make a lot less on those cancer patients. And so, you know, conspiracy theorists say that maybe it's the pharmaceutical companies that are you know, prompting medical boards to go after these people. But in fact, the medical board did go after my father and his medical partner um, whenever they could. And uh, I I felt that they were unfairly targeted because they were doing alternative treatments. And they never said to him, oh, you're, you know, we don't like this treatment. They would say, we don't like the way you're keeping your records or uh, you know, something along those lines, and, and we don't the like website. the way your website uh, reads. And it was very nitpicking, and they disregarded the fact that he, 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 he could bring in a 1,000 people to say, that, to say, this guy saved my life. And it was very frustrating to see that. But I, I like this bill. I like, I like that I, I think there is a risk that, you know, there will be charlatans and quacks out there trying to take advantage of people, but hopefully people – in making those types of decisions, will get online and do some research and get second opinions and really make an informed decision. But they should be able to make that informed decision. They shouldn't have the government tell them they can't. Well, that's what this law says. And then finally, we've got two other ones I want to touch upon quick, quickly. Uh, first of yeah. all, no more sports teams named Redskins in California. So right. that has been that banned as a has a mascot in California. So the Washington Redskins, if they ever move out of Washington, if they move to California, they'll have to change the name. And then finally, everybody will be happy to know that we have an official state fabric here in California. Can anybody guess what it is? Damn. Denim. It's <laughs> denim. <laughs> That's a good one, too. They probably hadn't thought of that, but maybe next year. Denim, that's good. All right, well, that's a, a a a good story about all these interesting laws. I find that very interesting. And with that, we'll wrap up today's show. We don't have time for Reed's rant, but maybe we'll get to that next week. Uh, I appreciate everybody listening. Remember, this is Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. And feel free to check out our website at kuziklaw.com, K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com. And you can listen to this show and others on blogtalkradio.com slash kuziklaw. 
Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and Reed. Remember to check us out at KuzikLaw.com. That's KuzikLaw.com. Each week, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and all legal current events. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio.